Let's open our Bibles tonight to the book of 2 Peter, tonight, 2 Peter chapter number 1, 2 Peter chapter number 1. We began our study in 2 Peter last week, uh, looking at an introduction to this book and the opening words of, of Peter as he sat down to put pen to paper and write a letter to the believers, encouraging them to grow in their Christian life. And by growth, we mean learning more about God so that we act more like God. And in the book of Second Peter, there are uh, a number of portions that are very practical in nature, talking about specific behaviors and specific attitudes that as Christians, we need to make sure are present in our lives. The middle chapter, chapter 2, uh, it says a lot of uh, about false prophets and false teachers who would be a hindrance to our Christian growth and how we need to be careful to avoid them. And as, as Peter was writing this letter, you can really sense the burden that he had to see believers grow and become mature Christians. Remember, Jesus appointed Peter to be the very first pastor in the New Testament. And he told Peter, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. And so Peter had a, a, a calling upon his life to be a, a leader and a, be a, really a, uh, the, the first, in, the, in a lot of ways, a model example of a pastor in the New Testament. And the second epistle was written specifically to encourage Christians to, to grow and to, and to learn more about God. But before Peter begins to discuss the specifics of spiritual growth, he lays out some very important theological groundwork in this uh, first chapter in verses 3 and 4. So I'd like for us to begin uh, this evening reading these two verses, and then we'll look at some of the details that we find in them tonight. Verse number 3, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that had called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You know, such an important topic as spiritual growth requires us to have a a foundational and very crucial understanding, and that's this. Spiritual growth cannot be accomplished without God's help. We cannot do it on our own. Any kind of spirituality, quote-unquote, that is achieved independent of God is by definition self-righteousness. And remember that Jesus warned us against that kind of religion. He said in Matthew 5.20, For I say unto you that your righteousness, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. What was the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? It was self-righteousness. It was all about creating systems where you could work and you could prove how good you were and how holy you were, and how superior you were to everyone else. It was a very self-righteous 
self-driven system. And Jesus said, you've got to do better than that. That's not good enough. God has called all Christians to reject self-righteousness and instead to let God work in us to make us what he wants us to be. It's not about our effort. It's not about our achievements and our hard work. It is all about God working in us. We can grow in grace, but we must grow God's way or else God will not get the glory that he should get from our lives. Let's notice how Peter lays this foundation in these verses. The title of the lesson tonight is The Fundamentals of Growth because what we're going to notice here are these basic blocks, building blocks upon which our spiritual growth must be founded. Number one, note with me the capability to grow from the first part of verse number three. So there are some spiritual truths that we must understand to be able to grow in grace like God intends us to. And the first and foremost truth is this. Verse three says, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Here's what, what that means. We can only grow through the power of God. So the introductory phrase, according as there, in this, in this introduction, uh, introductory paragraph, it basically saying that what he's going to talk about is in agreement with or in accordance to the divine power that God has given us, that divine power that gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's all of God. It's His divine power, and it is He who has given us these things. We cannot make ourselves grow any more than we could make ourselves spiritually alive. Think back to when you got saved. When you made the choice to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, it was because you realized that you could not save yourself. That none of your works would ever be good enough to save you from eternity in hell. And you had to depend on Christ and Christ alone to save you and to give you spiritual life. That is how you started the Christian life. And that is how you must live the Christian life every single day. With that knowledge in mind that you can't do it on your own. You are totally and completely dependent on God. Just as you were dependent on Him for salvation in the first place, you are dependent on Him to grow in grace every single day. You know, the temptation we face, though, is to be do-it-yourself Christians. There's a big thing today uh, on TV and on the Internet and everything, lots of Lots of people are interested in the DIY forums, you know, do it yourself. And they got shows online and YouTube channels you can watch and all about how to do, do things yourself. And I'm a huge fan of that. I am a do-it-yourself kind of guy. It physically pains me to have to pay somebody to do something I know that I could do myself, you know. And so I like doing things myself. And if I don't know how to do something, I want to learn how to do it. And uh, I, think, I think there are some wonderful to tools today to do that. YouTube is, is, is amazing. It, I, I'm constantly amazed. I can think of the most random thing in the world, search YouTube, and somebody's done a video on it, you know? But that's pretty helpful. For instance, working on a vehicle. Um, I uh, recently was uh, working on a, one of our vehicles, and I uh, was changing a uh, thermostat, and it was one I had not worked on before. 
And uh, because of the modern American engineering, I needed three elbows and 16 joints in my fingers to get to this thing, you know. And I was having some trouble figuring out, how am I going to work, work inside here? I'm not an octopus. I can't, you know. So what did I do? I pulled it up on YouTube. Sure enough, somebody had a video and broke it down. Take this part off. Take that part off. You know, go through this religious ritual. and Eventually, you'll be able to do it, right? But it's so helpful to be able to do that. But there's a downside to living with that kind of a mindset if it creeps into our spiritual life. And that's our temptation is to want to be do-it-yourself Christians. To say, no, I can do it my way. I, I got this. I can figure it out. I know I'm struggling with this. I can fix it. I know I've got this problem, but I can take care of it. And instead of living in dependence on God, we become independent of God. And the result is frustration and failure. There is no such thing as a Christ-like do-it-yourself Christian. A do-it-yourself Christian isn't Christ-like. They are self-righteous. The work of spiritual growth is a work that God does in us as we submit to him. In John 15, Jesus used the illustration of a vine and its branches to help us really grasp this truth. You probably know these verses, but he said in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. Remember the children's song in Sunday school? Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. His banner over me is love. That's that truth right there. Just like the branch is totally dependent on the vine for everything, we are entirely dependent on our vital connection to the Savior for our spiritual growth and fruitful living. We are entirely dependent on Him. Jesus will go on to say in John chapter 15, For without me, ye can do what? Say it. Nothing. He didn't say without me you can't do everything or some things. He said you can do nothing. We are entirely dependent on him. In some ways our spiritual growth is similar to our physical growth. In Matthew 6.27 Jesus said, Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to his stature? Now there's some things we can do that will affect our, our growth, especially after we stop growing up and start growing out. But how many of us has ever been able to make ourselves taller by thinking about it? Nobody. Can't do it. And just like you cannot make yourself physically taller through your own efforts and through your own work, you cannot make yourself spiritually taller. You cannot grow spiritually through your own effort. Why would we think that we can make ourselves more spiritually mature through self-centered thinking and behavior when we can't even grow physically one inch through our own effort? So the capability to grow comes from God. So on the one, and on the one hand, then, we must recognize that without God's power, we can do nothing. We cannot grow. But the other side of this truth is that we have been given by God everything we need to grow. That's what the verse says. Yes, it's His divine power, not our power, but His power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, everything that we need to be what God wants us to be. And all of that was given to us 
in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we have everything we need. This is a a very important truth for each of us to get settled in our minds. Because there are going to be times that you're going to feel like you're missing something in the Christian life. You're going to feel like something was left out. Somehow you were skipped, you were overlooked, and you don't have everything you need. But it's at those times you need to remind yourself that if you have Jesus, if you're a Christian, you have Jesus then, then you have everything that you need. Paul put it this way in Romans 8.32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What was Paul saying? Paul was saying that if God loved you so much that he would give the greatest gift ever, his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if God would give Jesus for us, then would he not also with Jesus give us everything that we need? There is no greater gift. There was no greater need than our need for salvation. And God gave Jesus to meet that need. Why would we doubt that he would give us anything else that we need? Colossians 2 verses 9 through 10. For in him that is in Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him. Which is the head of all principality and power. Ye are complete in him. Is what the Bible says. Our completeness and, and, and this, the sufficiency that we have. Paul said our sufficiency is not of ourselves but it is of Christ. It is all about Jesus. So when we're tempted to feel like we're missing something, just remember that in Jesus we have everything. You know, a few things are as frustrating as trying to complete a puzzle you don't have all the pieces to. That's why I don't buy puzzles at yard sales that have been opened. Just not going to do it. Because I'm the person, I'm going to get 999 pieces together and the thousandth piece was eaten by their dog, you know. Sometimes the Christian life will feel like a puzzle. But the wonderful truth is that God has given us in Jesus all the pieces we need. We're complete in Him. We must learn to acknowledge that truth when we're frustrated and when we're discouraged and choose to believe that we do have what we need. And it's just a matter of letting God take us through the process of putting the pieces together. See, that's the thing about puzzles. When the manufacturer ships a puzzle, they don't ship it to you assembled. They're mean. It's all taken apart and put in a plastic bag and mixed up all together. Now you've got to go through the process of separating it out and finding the edges and separating the colors and getting everything matching and putting it all back together. And that takes time. Well, you know what? The Christian life is the same way. When you were saved, you had all the pieces there, but you were a bag of pieces all jumbled up. And so there's a process called sanctification growth in Christ's likeness that God has to take us through to get all those pieces sorted and put it together put together properly. Just trust God as he takes you through that process. Because ultimately when God gets all those pieces put together, it's going to form the perfect picture of Jesus Christ in your life. That's goal God's goal for us, Christ likeness. And living this way, just trusting God for what we need to be what God wants us to be, 
is really the essence of what Paul called living by the faith of the Son of God. In Galatians 2.20, he used that phrase. He said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Just trusting God through the process. So the capability to grow. It's not in me. It's not in you. The capability to grow comes from God. It's through His power. And in His power, He has given us everything that we need. But notice with me next here, from the rest of verse number 3, Peter says something about the calling that we have. And it's a call to glory. The call to glory. 2 Peter 1, verse 3, the end of the verse says, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So He's given us everything that pertaineth to life and virtue, and it's through the knowledge of Him that has called us to glory and virtue. Sometimes when we talk about Christian growth and maturity and these concepts, it can seem kind of vague to us. What exactly do we mean by that? But when we understand that our growth is connected to our learning and our knowledge, we begin to get a clearer picture of what Christian growth really is all about. To put it very simply, we grow spiritually as we get to know God better. God has called us to live virtuous lives for His glory, and that happens as we learn more and more about God through the knowledge of Him who has called us to glory and virtue. That's how our growth comes, through the knowledge of Him. And that's, that, it's that theme, the knowledge of God, that Peter has begun this epistle with, and he will end this epistle with it. Verse number 18 of chapter 3, he says there, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So the calling that we have... The calling to glory is a calling to get to know God better, to learn more and more about Him. But I want to ask a question that maybe you have asked before, or maybe someday you will think of. How can we know an infinite God? How can we know a God who in many ways is unknowable? You know, it's true that we cannot know everything that there is to know about God. We can't. If we could know God perfectly, then God would be no better than us. And He would not then be worth our time. But God is so much greater than us that there are going to be things about Him that we will never be able to understand this side of eternity. And so some might think, why even bother then? If there's there's so much about God we can't know, why even try to get to know Him at all? But the truth is, we should strive to know God better, not because we hope to learn everything about Him. We don't arrogantly think that we are going to be able to know everything there is to know about God. But here's the truth. We can know everything God wants us to know about God. And that's a very important distinction. I, I, have, I have read after people who have taken the line of thinking that because God is so great and so infinite, we'll never get to know Him, that we just don't even need to bother getting in, into the details. Just, just, you know, enjoy God 
whatever your view of him is, you know, that's fine, whatever, because none of us is going to know him perfectly. That was their way of thinking. That was their way of teaching. But that's very unbiblical. Because what God tells us is not, hey, you can know everything there is to know about me. But what God tells us is, I've told you everything I want you to know about me. And that is what we can learn. So do not let the unknown things of God discourage you from getting to know what you can about him. That's a real struggle. It's been a real struggle in my life. Where There's been times where God has just totally baffled me. And I'll be honest, frustrated me. But he did it for my good. And it's at times like that that you're tempted to just think, what's the point? Why even bother? Don't give in to that temptation. Don't let the unknown discourage you from getting to know what you can know about God. I actually just this morning read an illustration in, in a devotional that I thought was so fitting in this idea. Um, when it comes to music and sound, there are pitches that humans cannot hear. On, there's, there's pitches up on the high end that our ears do not register. And so, for instance, dogs can hear a very uh, much higher register than we can. That's why they have dog whistles. Dog whistle, you blow it, no, a person can't hear it, but a dog can. And then on the other end, there are very, very low tones that as humans, we don't, we don't pick up. Uh, elephants and whales are two creatures that use very low tones to communicate with one another, many times well below the range of the human hearing. And so you have all of these sounds, some of them too high for us to understand to, and hear, some of them too low. But in the middle, there are, is a whole range of, of tones that we can perceive. Now, just because we can't hear those super high or super low notes, does that mean they don't exist? Does that mean they're not real? Does that mean that music is made up? No, it just means that we're limited. There's only certain things we can perceive, but there are other things outside of that. And, you know, we have scientific instruments that we can capture those sounds, we can measure them, and we can, we can uh, 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 know that they're there. And the same thing is true about God. There are things about God that are beyond our ability to understand. They're outside of our range. They're too high. They're too deep. We're not going to be able to understand them. But they're true. And rather than getting discouraged about those things, what about all of that in the middle that we can know that God has revealed to us about himself? The Lord said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For as high as the heavens are than the earth, so high are my thoughts than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. So there are truths that we'll never be able to fully understand until we get to heaven. But instead of getting discouraged because we can't know everything, be encouraged that a God who is so awesome and so infinite allows us to know anything about him. Through the knowledge of him, he has called us to glory and virtue, the verse says. By this, he means that God has called us to glorify him by living a virtuous life. Glorifying God by knowing him better should be the chief ambition of our life. Everything else in our life should take second place to that one goal, knowing God and knowing him better and better. 
in Jeremiah chapter 9. In fact, turn there. Jeremiah chapter 9. There's all kinds of different ambitions that people have in life. Some people live for fame. Some people live for political power. Some people live for fortune. Some people live for education, intelligence. But you know, none of those pursuits are really worth devoting our life to. And in Jeremiah chapter 9, the Lord has some words of instruction for us. Verse 23, Jeremiah 9, 23, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Let him that glorieth glory in this, that he knows God. That ought to be our chief our highest ambition in life. The Apostle Paul understood the importance of knowing God better. In Philippians, he said that he counted all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. He said that he was willing to give up everything so that he could know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering. And those were not idle, empty words. Paul lived that way. He gave up everything so that he could know Christ better and be what God wanted him to be. In fact, knowing God is so essential to the Christian life that Jesus said the meaning of eternal life was summed up in knowing God. Listen to this verse, John, John 17, 3. Jesus said, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That's how important knowing God is to the Christian life. It's, it sums up what eternal life is all about. It's about knowing God. I know there's so many things, so many blessings that we've been given and so much that we should rejoice in in salvation. When we think about heaven and how wonderful heaven's going to be, we think about the street of gold, the mansions, and we think about our loved ones that we're going to be reunited with there and just how wonderful it's going to be in heaven. But you know what really is the greatest part about being saved? Even better than being rescued from hell and getting to go to heaven for all of eternity. The best part about being saved is we get to know God. We get to know God. Knowing God better and better is what being a Christian is really all about. Now he's going to go on, he's going to talk about some specific attitudes and behaviors throughout this book, things that we need to be doing as Christians. But he starts here because all of our behaviors and thoughts are determined by what we know and believe about God. If you don't know the truth and you don't believe the truth about God, you will never behave how God wants you to behave. You'll never think how God wants you to think. You'll never speak like God wants you to speak. It all starts with knowing God. We have been called to glorify God 
by living a virtuous life through knowing him better and better all the time. And then Roman numeral three, as we look down at verse number four of first, second Peter chapter one, we are reminded of the, the promises or the covenants that God has given us. Let me read that verse again, Second Peter 1, 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. With the calling to glorify and virtue, uh, God by being virtuous, comes the promises of God that make it possible for us, possible for us to take place in God's plan of demonstrating his divine nature in us. And that's how he fulfills the calling in us. So the power to change comes from God and the promises come from God as well. And here, he call, Peter calls the promises exceeding great and precious promises. These are promises, not that man makes to one another, but promises that God has made to man. God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. God is able to keep all his promises and he is unable to make a promise that he will not keep. That's the great thing about God's promises is that if God has promised it, he will make good on it. He will do what he says. Many verses of scripture that, that tell us this truth. Let me give you one. Titus 1 and verse number 2. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie hath promised before the world began. I like how Paul said that. God that cannot lie. Not God that will not lie. I mean, God won't lie. But the way he put it was he can't. God can't lie. It's, it's literally impossible because he is truth. His word determines reality. Think about it this way, but don't think too hard because you might sprain your brain. Because God is truth. If God were to say something that wasn't true, the moment that he said it, it would become true so that it was true. I know, it hurts me too. But the fact of the matter is, God cannot lie. And so if God gives a promise, it will be kept. They are exceeding great promises. Because they are large and significant. We're not talking about little things. We're talking about huge things that impact eternity. They're precious promises because they're of eternal value. Now what sort of promises? Let's think about this in our context here of, of Christian growth. Of growing in grace and knowledge. What sort of promises has God given to us that pertain to this? Promises that God has made that will help us as we grow. Because it says that it's by these promises that we might be partakers of the divine nature. That we might take part in God's plan to change us into the image of Christ. Well, here are just a few to consider. Here are a few promises God has given us. First of all, God has promised to always be with us. How does that help in our growth? Because it means he's always close so that we might know him better. Long-distance relationships are hard, aren't they? They're hard. It's hard to get to know somebody who's far, far away. And thankfully, God is never far away. 
Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Hebrews 13, verse number 8 says, He will never leave thee nor forsake thee. God has promised he will always be with us. It's one of his promises that helps us grow. Here's another one. He's promised to make himself known to us. I'm so thankful for this promise because if God had not chosen to reveal himself to us, we could not know him. He is so much greater than we are that there's no way that you and I, through our own effort, could figure him out and get to know him. It's only because he chose to reveal himself that we can know him. He's so far above us that we would never be able to understand him except that God has made himself known to us through the scriptures first and then ultimately through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. First John 5.20, we know that the son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we might know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Notice the connection John makes there between knowing Jesus and knowing God. It's one and the same because he is God. So God has promised to make himself known to us. Let me give you just one more promise that God has given us. A covenant that helps us in our growth. He has promised to guide us into the truth. So he's revealed himself in scripture and through his son. But even then we need his divine enabling, his divine power to even be able to understand what he's revealed to us. We're so dependent on God. He's even put it right in front of us and we still need help to understand it. But thankfully, he has promised to give us that understanding. Because we're not left to our own devices to try and discover for ourselves the truth about God. The scriptures are given to us and the Holy Spirit is given to us to instruct us. John 14, 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've said unto you. The Holy Spirit teaches us and guides us into the truth. And that promise helps us as we grow in our Christian life. And there are many other promises that we could discuss, but there's really one more, and it's the greatest promise of all. It's really the most precious promise, and that is the promise of salvation. The promise of salvation. Notice how Peter reminds the believers of that at the end of this verse. He says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. How did that happen? How did we escape the corruption of the world through lust? By trusting Jesus. And he saved us. Now, the way Peter writes it, you know, he acknowledges that we were involved in that process. We escaped, but it was God who rescued us. We can't say that we rescued ourselves. And I want you to notice the contrast here between the corruption that is in the world in verse number four versus the glory and the virtue that God has called us to in verse number three. We only have to look around us very briefly and see what, a, what this corruption according to worldly lust looks like. The lust of the world is paraded before us every single day. We just turn on the news and we see that those lusts lead to disgusting and vile behavior that violates the God-given conscience and all natural norms. 
It's sickening the things that are being portrayed in our culture as normal and as right. How cold and callous we have grown. But God has rescued us from that. We've already escaped that. If you're a Christian, your salvation is present tense. You are saved. Not you will be saved, but you are saved. You've already been rescued from that. And there's a real sense in which we're not waiting to be rescued from this wicked world, but we've already been delivered from it. We have escaped the corruption. And it's because God has rescued us from sin that's even possible for us to know Him and to be a partaker of His divine nature. What does this have to do with the promises of God? Well, if He has kept His promise about salvation, and He has, He's already rescued us, then we can know that He will keep all His other promises. We can know that. We don't have to doubt. And the certainty of God's promises should encourage us then to want to know God better. Don't you want to know a God who is that trustworthy, that reliable? Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1.12, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And then persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Notice his words. He didn't say, I know what I've believed. He says, I know who or whom I have believed. His faith was in a person. His faith was in God. And he knew that God would keep his promise. So how is it possible for us to grow in grace? It's possible because God has given us the capability, the calling, and the covenants that make it possible. So spiritual growth is not a work that we accomplish on our own. It is a work that, that God does in us. Our part is to simply rely on God for all that we need to grow in grace. So as we go through this book and we see all the different things that we need to do, we must approach it with this understanding that it is by God's grace that we can do it. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us everything that we need in the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Lord, for wanting to be do-it-yourself Christians instead of relying on you to work in us and through us. May we live every single day with an awareness of just how needy and how helpless we are without you. And that we would submit to you and your working in our life to change us, to take away the bad, to add in the good, to make us more like Christ. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.